0: Welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Gretchen, and I'm joined here by my co-hosts, Nate and JM. How are you both doing tonight?
1: I'm doing really well. I was telling you guys earlier that I have a new setup here. I actually have a new desk and a new set of shelves and everything. And it's really funny because I've been actually working with the same desk since I was about 10 years old, and I just Mm. never changed it, even though it was slowly falling apart. And I guess I'm the sort of person that I will use something until it's sort of falling to pieces. And then I'll be like, oh, yeah, maybe it's time to get something new. And it's just, I don't know, it just never occurs to me. unless something is totally not working out. But not only do I have more room now, uh, the height is better. And I don't feel like it's going to fall over. And it's not jammed into the corner of the room anymore. So I'm a lot happier. So yeah. I'm glad that I did it.
2: Always <laughs> yes. a good feeling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been doing pretty good as well, making a lot of progress through Middlemarch, which is one of my favorite novels, and the oh. audiobook I'm listening to is really good. It's a very down-to-earth and almost very serious novel from the 1870s, so I'm eager to get into some more fantastical stuff tonight from around that same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's uh, George Eliot, right?
2: Yeah, right. I've read that once before as well as Silas Marner. But I have a couple of her other novels on my shelf, Felix Holt and The Mill and the Floss, which I'd like to get to at some point because I really do like her writing.
1: I did read Middlemarch when I was uh, in school, but it was unfortunately something that I've alluded to before was that I could not keep up with a lot of the reading that I had to do. And so I had to either race through it or read a lot of notes or something. And unfortunately, I didn't get the Middlemarch experience that I really wanted, but I, I would like to visit it again someday.
2: Yeah, it's one of those where you are benefited by taking your time, but it's definitely worth it.
1: Yeah, it's quite long as well. So it's really, (laughs) it was not fair to the literature the way we had to do it. And of course, everyone works at a different pace, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, even doing this podcast, sometimes I feel like at the last minute, I'm still reading, right? It's been okay lately, though, because we have been reading a little less per episode. And I've actually, Mm -hmm. uh, like you, had a little bit of time to read other stuff. Yeah. I know Gretchen's reading a lot for class. Yes. I started reading this trilogy called The Song Called Youth by John Shirley, and it's kind of a angry political cyberpunk sort of thing. It's quite good. I'm really invested in it. It's really tense. There's a lot of really frightening descriptions of where he thought the world might be going in the 80s, and he actually updated the book in more recent times, which I'm sort of coming to terms with. I... Was sort of unhappy about learning that at first, but now I'm kind of... I can't get it. He's a science fiction author. Why shouldn't he do that? It does seem like eventually he won't be able to do it anymore, and it'll fall behind the times anyway, but it's fine. <laughs> I've talked to... I, I managed to find one or two people that had read it back in the day, and they said it was still really prescient and really scary in the 1980s when it was first written, so... right, Yeah.
0: Yeah, I... As Jam said, I, I've had quite a bit of reading to do myself, but I have gotten sort of a lull. We, we had a bunch of essays that were due last week, but I've finished them all now, so I'm just kind of in this state right before finals. I'm not even thinking about finals at this point. I'm just sort of going to cross that bridge when we get to it. Yeah, right. Um,
2: also good but feeling. But at that. the
0: moment, yeah, yeah, it's, it's nice to, like... This one period where it's like, I have everything done at the moment, and that's ha- what I'm going to hold on to. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm glad that we caught you during the low period, that you're not super stressed.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Before we get into the works, though, tonight, you can find Chrononauts on all major podcast platforms, Spotify, Anchor, Apple. We have a blogspot at chrononautspodcast.blogspot.com, where you can read a number of texts and translations, including three of the four we'll be discussing tonight. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chrononauts sf and Facebook at facebook.com slash chrononautspodcast or email us at chrononautspodcast at gmail.com. And now with all that out of the way, we can actually start talking about the stories all of which center on the subject of war and future weaponry.
2: Yeah, war has always been like a major driving factor for innovation and technology. And we didn't plan this episode around the recent war with Ukraine and Russia, but uh, (laughs) it just kind of happened to be an evergreen topic that coincidentally came up uh, around the same frame.
1: (laughs) And very coincidentally, the book that I mentioned earlier that I'm reading actually starts with discussion of Russia invading Ukraine. So yeah. That was a little mm. startling to <laughs> say, yes. listen. But, but anyway, let's talk about more comfortable subject, which is the way people thought war might be from the 1870s till the 1920s, and what might happen, and what terrible weapons might develop, or what nations might be overcome.
0: Yeah, let's get into our first story, The Battle of Dorking by George Tompkins Chesney.
1: first story we're talking about by George Tompkins Chesney is probably the most influential and certainly the most known of the four stories we are covering tonight. It's the one that you will not find on the blogspot, but it is available in many places, including Project Gutenberg.
2: Yes. Gutenberg always comes through.
1: Yes. And historically, it's very interesting, actually. This story was hugely influential. And the talk of nations for a year or two after publication, and it may be considered the birth of the invasion genre. Even got criticism from the British Prime Minister himself. So that's something. Not too many Golden Age science fiction writers can say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> I may, may make a comment about that later, too, because anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. The enemy in this story is the Germans. Germany had successfully beaten France and German troops were on Paris streets. So when the prime minister at the time of Britain, William Gladstone, complained about this book, he was telling people not to be alarmist. But was the worry really that unfounded? So the story's influence is quite startling. It was published in Blackwood's magazine, which was known for its sensationalistic content but was read in England and America and in Europe as well. It's been talked about a lot. It was a very influential magazine. Edgar Allan Poe wrote about it somewhat mockingly sometimes, and it had circulation in Europe. So the purpose of the invasion narrative this time was not just to entertain, but it was meant as a warning. So it's in essence highly political. Really saying we need military preparedness. And these mammy Pammies want to dismantle the army. Okay, so what about Chesney himself? He was born in 1830 and he entered the military at a young age, along with his brother, who also attained fame as a military historian. He was captain in the Royal Engineers by his early 20s. And he went to India as an officer in 1850 in the Engineering Corps. He did see combat seven years later, of course, in an effort to suppress a rebellion, and he was severely wounded, but highly decorated and very quickly promoted. In 1870, he was recalled to England and founded the Royal College of Indian Civil Engineering. And by this time, he had attained the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. His rise was pretty steady, and by the 1890s, he was even a general. He was one of the champions of... Indianization, which to him and the army meant permitting Indian natives to become officers in their divisions, which was a very novel idea at that time. And his campaign was a failure because he met with heavy opposition and was ultimately not successful. But he chaired many servicemen committees and was involved in politics with the conservative party. He turned to fiction writing, in 1871 because he was interested in reforms and earnest articles and pamphlets didn't seem to be doing the trick. After 1871, he did publish a few novels, but The Battle of Dorking was his first attempt at fiction and remains his most known today. This story was so important to him that he published The Battle of Dorking anonymously in Blackwoods in May 1871 and the Blackwoods family, who owns the magazine, was very pleased with the response, and he was handsomely paid for the story and its multiple reprints. For his tale, he borrowed heavily from French sources by Erkman chatrian from the 1860s, the conscript and Waterloo, and these French tales tell of a conscripted soldier experiencing the disasters of the Napoleonic Wars. The advent of the steamship had called into question the defense of the channel and the primacy of the Royal Navy. France had published naval propaganda a few decades before, which the British found most discomfiting, and the sort of stuff that talked of a French naval fleet pounding the English coast under cover of a huge fog bank. Of course, back in the 1840s, the French were the big scare. There was propaganda on both sides, going way back to the 1790s. French caricaturists creating prints depicting huge rafts powered by windmills designed by Gaspard Manche, loaded with infantry and cavalry. The British even copied them and added captions saying things like, Real view of the French raft as intended for the invasion of England. And this was obviously all pure propaganda and intended to scare people. Yeah. They called this, jokingly, the Prince War and it went on till 1805, causing amusement and trepidation on both sides. Napoleon was reportedly especially amused. But Nelson's victory at Trafalgar sort of put an end to the whole thing, at least for a while. But again, the steamship on the horizon caused all sorts of ominous rumblings once again. But to everyone's surprise, it turned out that the French folded under the unpredictable and dangerous onslaught of the Prussians, known as Germans today, of course. And Britain had to reconsider who their biggest enemies were. At the time, everyone was really bowled over by this, because France was considered to have the strongest army in Europe. So there were warning bells in the Times and Mall gazette and places like that. The Times reported that they had a correspondent in Paris and He claimed that the possibility of an invasion of England was a popular topic of banter among the German officers at Versailles. And the historical precedent for war was pretty much set. And that carried on well into the mid-20th century. So it's pretty incredible that, in a way, the back and forth kind of starts right here. The New Reich was proclaimed in Paris itself. And after the armistice was declared, there was the infamous burning of the Paris Commune. It was 11 days after the armistice was declared that this story proposal was submitted. Britain had an empire overseas, and the regular army was often called upon to send units there. And they really were depending on volunteers at home. And it wasn't estimated they could drum up that many of them, maybe 150,000 at most. So the time was really, I guess, right for this. There'd certainly been plenty of military accounts before, even imaginary ones. Chesney's great strike was in transforming this into a sort of a tale of terror. This Blackwoods issue was so popular that it went through over half a dozen reprints. And the individual story, The Battle of Dorking, was printed in pamphlet form and sold over 80,000 copies and was heavily translated. And it lasted in the public consciousness for years. Even in the 1940s, it was reissued as a pamphlet to the German army with the title, What England Expects, in German, obviously. And there were a ton of sequels, all published by different people within the next few years after 1871. These weren't all straight sequels, but they included rebuttals, parodies, and even a story from the German perspective, written by a British author. Some of these rebuttals were also in major newspapers, like the Times, which sought to prove that Chesney's work was dangerously alarmist, merely a month after the Blackwoods issue published the original story. So The One in the Times came out in June, and it was called The Second Armada, a chapter in the future history. And it was supposed to describe what happened after the Battle of Dorking. Most of the straight rebuttals tell tales of British victory. There was even a series of anti-dorking verse in Punch magazine. I took a look at some of it, and it's really, really bad, but... <sighs> I don't even know, yeah, like really bad. So Gladstone made a speech about it and so did a Lieutenant Colonel William Hunter. Hunter's speech was really long and encoded all sorts of precedent as to why people shouldn't be frightened. Gladstone's main argument, because he kind of came in on a campaign of fiscal conservatism and low spending. So his argument was a pretty hilarious one when considered in modern times, especially. But it was essentially that It was all well and good for British people to read and possibly be entertained by or pleasantly horrified by this kind of stuff, but it got out. Foreigners read it, and it made England look ridiculous. Tax money would have to be spent on repairing things and bolstering things, and the British people surely didn't want that. Please, remember that people don't hate us, they love us. But, indeed, the great international reaction started also in June. And... This first came to pass in the Allgemeine Zeitung, a popular German magazine There was a supplement published and it was a purported letter to the Kaiser by a Jean-Michel Trutz-Bomwell, a London correspondent. And he listed moral, political, and strategic weaknesses of the British in this long epistle and ended with, Pride and satisfaction would be increased tenfold if the German Empire were made to extend from the Danube to the Shannon, and embrace India and Australia in its ample folds. So, Chesney did have a literary victory, but it didn't actually move the army. There's no evidence of increased preparation or anything. And soon enough, it all started to look like a sort of joke. There was a popular song in the music halls, and it was called The Battle of Dorking, A Dream of John Bull's," And it was sung to the tune of the English Grenadiers, and it was basically a jingoistic British victory song. And friends started to say to friends who suffered the slightest injury, Weren't you wounded at the Battle of Dorking?" So (laughs) let's get into what this thing is really about, which I'm sure any listeners can guess already if they haven't read it. Yeah. But it's a recounting of an old man who's lamenting to his grandchildren about the passing of the good old days in England. He and his generation should be ashamed that they let it happen, he thinks. He describes how great England was before the people and government. Foolishness let it all go. He stresses the importance of organizing the army. Even Napoleon's great army fell, and this should have been a lesson for the English to keep in mind. Instead, radical party politics encouraged a reduction in armaments such army that existed, scattered all over the place, trying to maintain colonies and quell piracy and quell the Irish. It's ridiculous, George saying. What about the home front? So the unnamed but obvious enemy annexes Holland and Denmark. And war is declared, and there's telegraph silence from the north. Hurriedly, the fleets and troops try to assemble, But there's now very little time. It's felt that invasion is nigh. And the fleet sets out to repel it on August the 10th. Two days later, they sight them. And all the people at home are anxious for news. The news is decisively bad. The enemy has some kind of secret weapon. Mines, perhaps. It's not really specified in the text. But they quickly lay waste to the British ships. The submarine cable is cut, and only one battleship limps back home with tales of utter defeat. The morning dawns lovely, but the people are sorrowful and expectant, and they know the fleet has been lost. Much work is suspended. The banks stop giving loans, and they try to quickly mobilize a standing army of volunteers. But there's now a shortage of weapons. The old muskets the government's able to dredge up are pretty inefficient. On Friday, August the 15th, the trains are still running. The narrator and a lot of others are on regular drill in the evenings now, but footmen are going everywhere trying to round up the public officials. It's all quite insurmountable. They need to pack their records and treasury off somewhere secret and safe. Train stations are used to pile supplies. The orders are to stand fast. The regiment is about 500 strong, mostly former government office workers. And then they realize, or while well, the brigadier in command of the area has been told, that the real attack is not in the east, but in the south. And there was a faint or a small flotilla. And they were really needed in the south, so they head out there. I believe at this point they're bound for Waterloo, but it hardly matters. At Worthing, near Brighton, the enemy lands, and the train doesn't set out again till 8 o'clock in the evening, and food and drink are not plentiful. The train is tightly packed, and they're not being told much. But as they seem to be heading northwest, the narrator and perhaps others are suspicious. They were headed for Horsham, but then diverted, and the enemy must have taken it. Indeed, they have already made it 20 miles inland, the enemy, that is. And it's eerily quiet as the day wears on. The men feel bad. They feel like the enemy is moving with great purpose, whereas they are shuffling about indecisively. And they're very hungry, and no provisions are brought from anywhere. There's some railing against bureaucracy that explains why they weren't supplied by a provision car. The author opines that the bureaucrats almost did them as much harm as the enemy, and they're informed that they need to travel ...to Dorking, where a battle is, of course, to be expected. And they'll meet other columns there. They've already run into some. So then on the way to Dorking, they find that most of the farms are now deserted. They do find one occupied, and a woman feeds the soldiers bread and cheese. And they drink water, but there isn't much. So they end up basically raiding a shop, and the regiment behaves badly. And they're reprimanded by a staff officer, but no one can really do anything... And they're ashamed of themselves, but they still feel justified in their actions. The organization continues to be poor. They haven't even any sacks to carry stuff in. But some men go down to where a food train has arrived and carry stuff back in their arms. All well and good, but they don't have any kettles, crockery, nothing at all of that sort. They do some foraging, though, and come up with some articles. And they're just obeying orders numbly and are told to prepare for a day's march. They arrive at Dorking, and on a hill, the scene is most picturesque, but it also looks like ideal ground for a battlefield. There's some more angst about unpreparedness and the foolish waffling of the leaders. Whatever authority is now in place is trying to provision, but everything's a mess. There's wagons, but no horses. No medical supplies. Meanwhile, the people in the town are trying to evacuate, but are just milling about aimlessly. There's a Sunday paper which announces the enemy has broken through on three separate fronts. First, there's a sort of resigned despair, but afterwards, anger and exhortations to fight with every last man. General pumps up the troops, but the narrator worries that the enemy might actually have better cover than their own men. He talks to some officers from another contingent that was routed, and they seem worried about the lack of support here as well. At one point, some random officer even starts railing against the volunteers, saying they don't need them or want them. Some other officers apologize awkwardly and blame it on his brother being killed. The battle begins in the late afternoon. Really, it's just the opening skirmish, but many are killed and wounded, including some of the narrator's acquaintances. The men want to help their wounded to safety, but there's barely time. Suddenly... They are outflanked by the enemy on the left, coming over the bank and firing into the midst of them. The combat is now pretty much hand-to-hand in some places. The British lose the lane and our man is wounded in the leg and arm. Now they're supposed to retreat to Epsom Downs. Things are pretty disorganized once again and they don't know what's happened to the wounded. They march all night and arrive at Epsom in the morning after a storm. They seem to have lost over half the regiment one way or another. The last train pulls in. Now it's time to dismantle the rails. A bad sign, indeed. There's a rumor that the arsenal at Woolwich has been captured. Defence of the country seems now hopeless, but the men are determined to fight on till the end. So at this point, the narrator gets hit by fallen debris, and he can no longer fight. Or at least that's what he thinks. And he decides To walk home, which I guess isn't very far. Kind of tried to do a good job of keeping track of the geography and the story, but I was still a little surprised that he was that close to home after all this. But I guess it was just kind of going to show how pointless all their wandering back and forth really was.
2: Yeah, and I think the stretch from like London to the beach isn't terribly far, like within 50 miles or so. I mean, certainly the infrastructure would be a lot different now than it is in the 1870s. Yeah, 70s, but I mean, but. they rode on
1: a train for entire nights. And yeah. And then, then they ended up back where they, I guess, almost where they started.
2: Yeah. It's really, yeah. yeah. I,
1: I think that that's sort of part of the point right? That Chesney was making, yeah, I guess. Yeah.
0: yeah, just kind of this circular motion.
2: Right, yeah. never getting
1: anywhere. Right. And then the enemy was advancing the whole time. So the sense of geography is certainly a bit confused, but... He decides to go to his friend Travers' house first. And Travers was in the regiment. And our man saw him wounded the previous day and tried to carry him to safety. Somehow, Travers did make it home, but he looks to be near death and is being cared for by his family. Our man goes upstairs to see Travers. And by the time he comes down, the house has been hit by a shell. And their young child is missing half his head. Finally, succumbing to fatigue and his wounds... Our man faints. And when he comes to... The house is full of Germans. They're still not named. But, well, they're speaking German. And putting down the English volunteers. So, the wife of Travers is still there. And dresses his wounds, finally. But, you have to wonder what her fate will be. Now that she's billeting some unwanted guests. So, upon leaving, though, our narrator save some English prisoner from being shot out of hand, because he can speak German, and he laments the superior attitude of the enemy in their conquest. Finally, he refers to his children again, or his grandchildren, that is. The English have been living on sufferance for 50 years now. The enemy, of course, blames England for the war, and they must pay reparations. England is broke, and all its wealth based on foreign land and acquisitions which are now gone and can't be held and there's lots of stuff about how this shouldn't have happened and how there should have been a little austerity he blames the populace and not the aristocracy grandfather is bidding farewell to his grandchildren who are somehow off to a new land but he he, will let his bones crumble in the old English soil This blessed plot. And that's the end of the Battle of Dorking. What do you all think of the political leanings of this story and
2: what it's trying to say? I think it's pretty interesting politically. The text was a lot livelier than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be like one of those dryish screeds that you kind of encounter in these early works sometimes. But it's obviously patriotic and emphasizing the military in a strong capacity or desire for a strong military presence. But I think in a way, it ties in with his efforts to try to reform the army to incorporate people from India to serve as British officers, and I'm assuming become British citizens, in that I think he views the British Empire as being overextended and focusing more Mm -hmm. on being a conquering power rather than one united front across the empire and you really see the warnings against overextension warnings against meddling in these pointless wars against the irish and things like that as being totally destructive to the good of the empire but at the same time it does have this very patriotic streak running through it the entire time there is one pretty funny, I think I'm using offhand dig at communism at the very beginning, which he is just making like an offhand comment, but apparently in the future the German regime that conquers Britain here is also themselves ruined by the communists later on. Uh, that's just how bad the ideology is. I missed that. What did he say exactly? It, it's like right at the very beginning. I could pull up the yeah, text real I think, quick. I
0: think I remember that.
2: He says, and yet, if ever a nation had a plain warning we had... We are the greatest trading country, our neighbors with a leading military power in Europe. They were driving a good trade, too, for this was before their foolish communism, about which you will hear when you are older, had ruined the rich without benefiting the poor. And they oh. were in many respects the first nation of Europe. But it was okay. on their army that they prided themselves most.
1: Yeah, I do remember now. Now that you've read that passage aloud, I, I remember it. But for some reason, it just sort of flew by me at the time. Yeah.
2: That's, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. I had forgotten about it until you mentioned that. But yeah, I mean, it is very interesting cuz I I went in thinking it was either going to be very imperialist, colonialist, or I was also thought it might take more of an isolationist view. And I guess it it leans more towards the latter, but it's still it it's more about reform and sort of this idea of again not overextending England, but it, it's still very patriotic and still pretty nationalist.
1: Yeah, I think it's very patriotic. I actually think that definitely, you know, there's two, there's two sides. There's, I mean, the German side, which is obviously depicted here as being very pro-expansion and the same sort of thing that looking for the same sort of thing that was was a big selling point to Nazis during the Second World War, which is Lebensraum and all that, mm-hmm. where where they just mm-hmm. sort of yeah, like you need more more space for the great. Bosom of the German Empire, right? And Britain had, obviously, in Chesney's view, who did get to serve abroad and was wounded there, trying to deal with a rebellion, overextend itself. And he seemed very worried about this, and he seemed very worried about the fact that not a lot of effort seemed to be going into homeland defense. And I actually think that this is, it's sort of anti-imperialist, but yeah, it's very much, we need to have a strong army and we need to make sure we're ready to defend ourselves because we actually have enemies, great enemies, at our doorstep.
2: And nobody has successfully invaded the island since 1066, I think, and he probably felt that the crown was becoming too complacent in that fact, especially when the Prussians were really on the move. Prussia is a historically small territory that's not even a part of modern Germany anymore, but they really conquered a lot of area in a small amount of time and besieging Paris it's just unthinkable
1: well right and like I was saying it it was generally thought that their army was was the most superior force at the time yeah so it really must have sent people into a panic yeah uh, or at least some people not Gladstone apparently and not the editor of the Times who thought this was all a bunch of pointless excitement and and, uh, alarmism
2: (laughs) well still pointless excitement and alarmism make a lot of money and I think that's definitely what happened here
1: yeah, and that was, that was definitely the goal of Blackwoods Magazine. They were very pleased with the circulation numbers yeah. and how things were going.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can really feel its influence on a lot of the sci-fi invasion narratives from later on. Like War of the Worlds, especially.
1: I don't know if Wells himself ever talked about reading this, but definitely I can see some resemblance, especially in talking about the atmosphere of the sort of deserted city or people trying to evacuate and stuff like that and yeah it, it seems like that was a real influence
2: yeah it's just chaos everywhere and nobody knows anything and there's really no heroics at all for a military type story like the whole battle scenes are just really grisly and gruesome and the narrator, he kills a German soldier, but he's so horrified by his actions that he has to do it with his eyes closed while he, like, shoves a bayonet through his throat. And then when he makes it back to his civilian lines, his friend's wife's kid gets his head blown open by an artillery shell, and there's really nothing in here like you'd see in a more modern war story where there's, like, the courageous soldier who goes in and looks fear right in the face, and but here, there's none of that whatsoever. It's just, everything happens so fast, people are killed very quickly and very painfully sometimes, taken off the battlefield. It's just not a heroic story whatsoever
0: in any yeah. aspect. No. Yeah, it's very, very much not glorifying at all of war. It's very messy. Yeah.
2: And you'd almost expect the opposite of a really glorifying battle scene from somebody who has served in the army, especially if they're trying to push a stronger military presence to at least throw in some kind of character like that to put a good face on the army. But he portrays the military as being these like almost classist, cowardly fools from top to bottom, who are too good to serve with the volunteers, but they're just cut down instantly by a superior force and they don't really know what to do how to conduct themselves or anything like that once the battle actually starts to get going yeah
0: yeah i remember that one bit with the one general who has like just so many medals he can he has them around his neck and yet (laughs) all of them they are instantly killed off
2: yeah, what good is all that going to do him when the artillery shells and the bullets are flying right at your head, you know? Yeah.
1: I came across a small paper by a James Earnshaw, who was a student at St. Andrew's University and seemed to be studying historical portrayals of sexuality. And his position was that Chesney wanted to make the narrator contemptible and he essentially was trying to show that uh, it was the middle class that's not prepared for war and that he was sort of lamenting the passing of these old world ways where men were always prepared to fight and they would do it till death if they had to and just to protect the land. He thinks that the author is very unsympathetic towards the narrator and is trying to portray him as a weak person who doesn't have a stiff upper lip. And cannot suppress his war trauma. And uh, he should have gone on fighting. And uh, you know, when he was hit in the head by all that stuff. He just wandered home like a pussy. <laughs> and not, not that the person who wrote the paper believes that. He says that that's what Chesney was trying to yeah. communicate. I'm not, I'm not totally convinced. I mean it does no, seem like.
2: No, I don't know if I am either.
1: Yeah, and he does offer an alternative side as well. Because he points out that Chesney himself was wounded in 1857. And it could be that he did feel some sort of weakness or that he was unable to live up to the exacting standards that he thought he should be able to live up to and that the Battle of Dorkin could be a sort of exorcism for him. So, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I, I did sort of wonder about that a little bit. It did seem like a very realistic way of portraying war trauma, though. And I, yeah. I kind of feel like... But mm-hmm. I, I wonder if I'm looking at it with too much of a modern perspective where we say, yeah, like, war's hell and... People shouldn't have to do that. That sucks, right? Right. And of course, when your life is in the balance, you would want to run, right? And I understand sometimes that a certain amount of military preparedness might be needed sometimes, but I couldn't blame anyone for not being a machine and being so at the mercy of their emotions and their fear and so on that they can't handle it. I feel like the alternative is almost worse, right? Because then you're turning people into remorseless machines or cannon fodder one or the other right yeah
2: yeah and I, I think it does feel very modern in that sense where it does offer a more realistic portrayal of it than something like uh, historical romance where they're talking about medieval knights and battles in that kind of context even then in like a more somber piece like the master of and there's still like heroics and like brave characters and things like that. And everybody seems to know what's going on in the battle, whereas Mm -hmm. this just like nobody knows anything. And I think he really emphasizes that point over and over again, that nobody knows where to move the supplies. Nobody knows where to march the troops and everything you do. There's just bullets everywhere cutting everybody down. And he is really good at capturing that, chaotic unstable atmosphere
1: yeah and there's an intense desire for communication everywhere in it Uh, there's always a desire for news right and nobody knows anything about what's happening in the country like anywhere else yeah and they depend on superiors for news but sometimes even the superiors don't really seem to know what's going on and of course they're dependent on the telegraph lines and stuff like that once those are cut then the only line of communication is messengers on horseback, really. Right. Uh, so that's the way wars used to be fought. Things are about to change, and they're already changing in 1871. But, yeah, it's a really good depiction of this, the fog of war, right? Yeah, right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so, this mass of confusion. Everyone is equally just unsure of what to do.
2: Except for the Germans, who know exactly what to do. Yeah, they know how uh, to shoot right. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> So one thing that I thought was interesting and totally tangential to the plot here is when we first started doing the podcast, we had like a whole bunch of characters named Clara at the very beginning episodes. I think there was like six or seven stories and yes. we hadn't had any for like 20 episodes, but the narrator's sister is named Clara and she's oh. like only mentioned once or maybe twice in the course of the novella. But we have another one of the Claras in this episode.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's funny. General commentary about today's episode. Military military futures and preparedness from 1871 to 1926. But yeah. there's only one woman character in this entire episode. Yeah. So <laughs> that's where we're at. But yeah, one thing that you did point out was that this was not dry. And I, I do I definitely admire how economical and concise and to the point this whole thing was. Before this time, the material I read in preparation for this, did actually allude to a lot of the pamphleteering that was going on. And there was a lot of that stuff. And it is exactly the stuff that you don't want to read, especially nowadays. So this was an attempt to fictionalize it, but still it's a future prediction story. And it's intense. And I think part of the reason it was internationally popular, even in places like the United States, was that it it was a stimulating read. And several people, including Germans in magazines and stuff commented on how attractively it was written. So, you know, I'm not going to say it's a literary masterpiece or anything, but for his first attempt at fiction, this is quite strong and it's quite evocative and really leaves an impression.
2: Yeah, I thought it was kind of going to be a slog, but I'm really glad it wasn't.
0: Yeah, I was expecting the same thing. I was a little wary that when I started I thought it was going to be sort of pretty dull or like like you said dry, but it wasn't.
2: Yeah, no Definitely good. And pretty short, too. So if you're scared off by the political nature of it, don't be, because I think it has a lot going for it aside from that.
1: Yeah, and it's not quite so. The case can be made for the amount of jingoism that was around, like, really increasing by the early 1900s. And this was more sobering, more kind of detached a little bit, even though it was obviously trying to make a political point. But an interesting thing is, yes, this is, this is the first of a long line of future war stories, not all of which had real political intent. But a lot of them did. A lot of them were meant to be scary. They were meant to sort of make people nervous about what was to come. And obviously, this even ties in to what we consider now, even though most of that's probably just done for entertainment, but, you know, the whole military science fiction genre, mm-hmm. which is huge, massive. Mm-hmm. So there's some interesting things. This was actually not necessarily the first future war story. There were a couple of other examples from the United States, actually. Uh, one was in 1836 by Nathaniel B. Tucker, and the other one was by Edmund Ruffin in 1860. And interestingly, both were predictions of the oncoming Civil War huh. in the United States. According to E. F. Clark, who seems to be the real expert on this kind of material, the Tucker book's not very good, but the Ruffin <laughs> is definitely worth a read. So,
2: yeah, that's interesting that there'd be a Civil War prediction as early as the 1830s. I mean, I could definitely see 1860. I mean, it was pretty much right yeah, on it the Yeah, that was pretty much around then, the corner. Yeah, and, uh, yeah
1: that's uh, that was Nathaniel Tucker's in 1836. Yeah, he doesn't speak very highly of that work. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't really doesn't really consider any of the ramifications, and it's actually more of a romance, right. apparently. Uh, but the 1860 book is called Anticipations of a Future, I believe, and mm-hmm. it actually is written in the form of letters from oh. a Englishman in the United States over a period of several years. So starting in like 1864 or something and going on until 1870. And yeah, like you said, it was just around the corner, so he was sort of making a prediction of what would happen.
2: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: So not quite related, but something that I also thought was interesting that I came up against. This is historical fiction, so we, but it's an actually alternative history, which is another area that we're definitely going to see a lot of as we proceed <laughs> in the podcast. I, I'm not sure when our first one will be, but it'll be interesting when we, we come up against it. But as far as I know, this might be the first example of that. And it's a pro-Napoleonic piece, and it is... Written by a Louis Geoffroy, and again, 1836. Uh, yes. And <laughs> the name of the book is Napoleon and the Conquest of the World, 1812 to 1832, the story of a universal monarchy. And it is essentially a tale of how Bonaparte conquers the world and is successful in Russia in 1812, moves on to conquer Britain and the rest of Europe and Asia and all the Americas. And there's actually some excerpts of it in Adam Roberts' History of SF, and it's really strange and chilling, almost. It's just the way it's written is, is quite something. I would, I think that it's sort of a little bit maybe outside the science fiction purview, but it sounds like something I might want to take a look at someday.
2: I wonder if it's all been translated into English.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. It it, it seems like, well, yeah, I can, I don't know actually. It's a good question. So yeah, I guess that's about it for this one but just an interesting lot of backstory and interesting precursor to so many things and I had never actually heard about this before a couple months ago <laughs> but once you kind of go digging it's it's easy to find a lot of references to it and yep. I think especially some of the follow up material which of course didn't last as long in terms of public consciousness but like it's just interesting that it all happens so fast like yeah. we like to think of Things back then, is moving quite slowly, but less than a month afterwards, people were already coming up with counter stories, which I think is really interesting.
0: Yeah, quite a phenomenon.
1: Yeah. 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 And I think it's just interesting how people thought like right away, oh, I have to say something about this and I have to like make a rebuttal or something. And it's just weird to me because normally I would think, well, if you really don't like something, best thing to do is probably <laughs> ignore it. But I think maybe it's because of the politics that people were actually genuinely upset by this and scared by it. I
2: would imagine, yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So if nobody has anything else to add, I think we will move on to a somewhat more lighthearted work.
0: Alton Cuppard is a pseudonym for the author and educationist Sir John Adams. Born in Glasgow on July 2nd, 1857, Adams would become the first professor of education at the University of London. He would become a prolific academic, producing a large body of publications and lectures. Throughout his life, he also worked at the Educational Institute of Scotland, the Free Church Training Colleges in both Aberdeen and Glasgow, and the University of Glasgow. He was knighted in 1925 for his educational work and moved to the US, settling in Los Angeles and lecturing at the University of California until his death on September 30, 1934. Fortune from the Sky, written under Adam's pseudonym in 1902, starts, quite fittingly considering our theme, with a message preluding to war. England has been issued an ultimatum by France, who has formed an alliance with Russia. This news, however, offers our protagonist, a man named Fred Gurley, a prospect he has been hoping for. A destitute man, the war will offer Fred a position in the army, Something he had during peacetime been refused due to a problem with his astragalus. Astragalus? That sounds better, I think. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, <laughs> for, for those of you, like me, who aren't well versed in anatomy, the astragalus is the bone that forms the lower part of your ankle joint. A little fact for you there. I didn't know that before no, this No, I had no
2: uh, idea either. I had written down in yeah. my notes, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, I wanted to make sure it was a real thing, so I did look it up. (laughs) Fred hopes that now the army will be desperate to recruit anyone who volunteers and will get some much-needed food and shelter from it. We are then given Fred's background and the circumstances that had led to his current state of poverty. Initially living with a pretty miserly uncle, Uncle Josiah, and working as a clerk in the Midlands, he moves to London at the age of 19, answering an ad in a newspaper, calling for a young man of prepossessing appearance and good address, who would work as a clerk for three pounds a week, quite a step up from the 18 shillings he was earning at the time. He heads off to London with an initial 20 pounds in his possession to work under his employer, a Mr. Wallaby Jones. After his first week of work, however, Fred does not, to his dismay, receive his payment of three pounds. He finally works up the nerve to ask his employer about his money, following another week without any payment, As and his employer claims he meant to pay Fred monthly rather than weekly. However, a month goes by and Fred still has not received the pounds he has earned. Instead, Wallaby Jones heads off to the country and leaves Fred in charge of his office. When people come to the office demanding to see his employer, Fred realizes that all of the people his employer has been contacting and working with have been swindled, and that he himself, while also being denied his money, has been left to take the blame for his boss's actions. After his innocence is proven, Fred is still left without a job. He applies for other positions, but is turned away when his connection with Wallaby Jones is revealed. Selling his more costly possessions and rationing his funds, Fred laughs for a while on what money he has, but eventually writes to his uncle for help. Uncle Josiah at first only offers criticism about the way Fred has conducted himself, though eventually sends him money. However, after doing so several times, Josiah refuses to send any more financial support to Fred and stops answering his letters. Fred is left to scrape by, doing whatever odd jobs he comes across to earn anything he can. It is in this state that Fred finds himself, now 22, at the beginning of the story. Fred, after hearing the announcement about the ultimatum, wanders the streets for somewhere to spend the night, and then comes across a strange scene. Two elderly gentlemen struggling for the possession of a small black bag. Fred only watches the fight until one of the men, with a white beard, gets a hold of the bag and runs off. Fred goes to help the other, a man with a white mustache, who merely urges Fred to catch up with the bearded man and get back what he claims is his property, offering Fred 150 pounds if he does so. Fred does as he is asked, catching up to the bearded man and taking the bag from him in order to give it to the one who claims to be the rightful owner. The moustached man doesn't have the reward on hand, but promises to give Fred his money the next day at a specific time and place. The bearded man then offers Fred 200 pounds if he will give the bag back to him, as he, he claims, is the true owner. So Fred grabs hold of the moustached man, intending to sort everything out. It is while he is struggling with the old man that a police officer arrives at the scene and mistakes Fred for a thief while the two gentlemen hurry off, the bearded man coming out of the confusion with the bag, but not before telling Fred to meet him in the mummy room at the British Museum the next day. Fred is hauled off to the police station where he tells his story and attempts to convince the police of his innocence. The police have no explicit proof against Fred, but they want to keep him at the station overnight, which Fred agrees to, though he still wants to try to make the meeting set up by the mustached man, the first meeting the two men had in turn promised him. The next day, Fred and some plainclothes officers head to the meeting, only for a policeman in uniform to meet him instead, giving him a letter. This officer is stopped by the men out of uniform, but Fred, leaving the meeting place, escapes their attention. The letter appears to be from the bearded man, who Fred then meets in the museum where he promised to be. He introduces himself as Wellingham and gives Fred his address in Russell Square, where he will pay Fred what he promised and take him on as an employer.
1: At this point, I thought he was getting scammed again. I'm like, oh, here we go again.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't have been surprised. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) First, though, he gives Fred an initial 10 pounds, which the latter uses to buy some new clothes. When Fred arrives at Wellingham's residence in the evening, he does so in style. Wellegham tells Fred that the mustached man he was struggling against the night before is a professor named Blaise Frisane, a renowned scientist Fred has never heard of before in his life. Wellingham explains to Fred that he himself has made a significant discovery, one that many of his peers ignored or doubted, but Frizane is the only other who understands its importance and is now attempting to steal the information Wellingham has of the discovery and using it for his own gain. Seeing that Fred fails to comprehend the scientific aspect of the discovery and only wants to know the purpose of it, he says, The practical result of my discovery is that I can do with men anything I want. As Wellingham continues, Fred realizes that the man has experimented on humans as well as animals and starts to fear that that is the purpose Wellingham has in store for him. When Wellingham catches on to this, he assures Fred that his job will be merely as protector, both of himself and his notes, and that he no longer needs to conduct any more experiments. In fact, the bag Frizzane was attempting to steal contained the last results of his experiments. Still, alarmed by the concept of human experimentation, Fred continues to question Wellingham in that vein, learning that the scientists did not experiment by, as Fred had thought, hacking people up, but that the procedures were painless, concerning the will rather than the body of men.
1: Yeah, none of this really came to anything, which was weird.
0: Yeah, (laughs) it's, you just kind of, it's mentioned once and then never brought up again.
1: Right, and I mean, this whole idea of not only experimenting on people, but that it affected the will, which turned out not to be the case. Like, it turned out to not be the essence of the machine at all. So
0: yeah,
1: it's it's, it's interesting, but it didn't really go where I thought it was going to go. But I didn't necessarily
2: mind the way it went. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes I kind of get the sense he was just making stuff up as he goes, which we'll we'll get to in a little bit. But I think that's definitely a symptom of that.
0: Yeah. It is very convoluted at points and switches back and forth between things. So it's not really clear what the purpose of some things are.
1: Yeah. And you really... Think you, you think you know what's going to be important or where it's going, and uh, I think that maybe he didn't, and maybe that's why. I think that it works until the very end, and then it sort of maybe mm-hmm. doesn't quite work as well, but anyway, we'll get to that.
0: <laughs> yes. Wellingham also tells Fred that Frisane is being backed by the French government in his attempts to steal his discovery, that he himself had tried to make the English government aware of his discovery's potential, but had not been taken seriously. After this, he finally shows his new assistant the laboratory and presents his machine. He tells Fred he is in need of 50,000 pounds in order to purchase the chemicals needed to run it. Fred then notices another device in the lab that gives off flashing lights, while well, explaining that they are the result of an overflow of second-remove electricity.
1: So I think this was all
2: nonsense.
0: Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that's... The case, I don't know if that actually is something that can be done.
2: Yeah, I think it's techno babble.
0: Right. Yeah. But he shows Fred that he can use the lights to form words. Once he finds out that Welligan can form large letters with his machine and that they can be projected onto the sky for a relatively small cost. Fred hatches the idea of using the device to make money off of advertising, since a company would be eager to pay a great price to have its product broadcast across the sky for anyone to see. Thus, Fred sets out the next day to find someone who would take up this method of advertising. He has no luck with the companies themselves, so heads to an advertising agent to get some help. He reveals his opening price for the advertisement to be £50,000, and explains the type of advertising to the agent, named Tomlinson, and after discussing terms and the amount of the latter's commission, they part until the next day, when Tomlinson shares with Fred that he has clients willing to pay £100,000 for the Sky advertisement. Fred accepts this offer, and the advertisement is projected within a week, to the initial shock and horror of many English citizens, but to the delight of the pill company being advertised, which sells out of their stock from the attention they've received. However, the British government, after the reactions caused by the first demonstration, bans any other attempts to advertise products this way. The ban does come in handy, however. Now that Wellingham has received the money he needs for the supplies necessary to run his machine, he finds that they are unavailable, since Frisane has bought them all up. So he sends Fred to the United States to find the chemicals, under the guise that he is trying to sell his advertising there, now that he is prohibited to do so in England. Wellingham also equips Fred with an ornament which will serve as protection, an accessory that the latter is embarrassed about. Keep that... In mind, that's something to keep pinned for later.
1: Yeah, this is a really strange thing in the book. all this stuff about the ornament that he's wearing. (laughs) Yeah. Really odd.
0: (laughs) At this point in the story, we shift for a while to events experienced by another character, a Dr. Forrester, who is woken up in the middle of the night by a man using the doctor's bell pole with his mouth. He explains to the doctor that he has lost the use of both of his arms. The doctor examines them and notes that they look fine, completely normal, and the man himself feels no pain in them. When Forrester questions the circumstances his patient was in when his arms stopped working, the man eventually, with some reluctance, admits that he was in the middle of committing a break-in and came across a machine that caused it. The man, named Dick, tells the doctor two other men were with him, who lost the ability to walk. Dick takes Forrester to the house on Warpinger's Lane. The man who resides there, the doctor learns, got a number of parcels from chemical warehouses and was supposed by his neighbors to be a counterfeiter. Dick and Forrester enter the house and then the room that contains the machine to find that one of the two men who had been left there, one named Tally, is gone. The remaining man tells his returned accomplice that Tally had found he could still use one leg and had stumbled off for help. Checking over the man's legs, Forrester finds that they seem as unaffected as Dick's arms. Tally then comes back with others to help lift the remaining man off the floor. As they do so, one of the people lifting the man's upper half falls to the floor and struggles a moment before ceasing all movements. Leaning over him, Forrester finds that he is dead. Alarmed by this, everyone except the doctor clears out. Forrester himself discovers that his own left arm has stopped working since leaning over the dead man, and heads to a fellow doctor, a nerve specialist named Centerpoint, who he hopes may have more knowledge on what has happened. Centerpoint, it turns out, is equally puzzled by Forrester's condition and the story his fellow doctor relates to him. The following day, the doctors return to the scene with an electrical engineer to look over the machine there. As the engineer steps past the area where the man has died the day before, he too falls dead. It is then that the doctors call in the police. They lead officers to the area, and in the room find the body of another constable who was called in by someone before the doctors reached the police station. The newly arrived officers decide to keep guards posted outside the room while the incident is reported at the station. Back we turn to Fred, now in America looking for the chemicals. Americans have already heard of him through his involvement in the Sky ad in England, and multiple companies and advertisers pursue him and make him offers. Eventually, a syndicate makes a threat that if he doesn't take their offer and place an ad for it, It will use its political influence to have any advertisements in the sky prohibited in the U.S. as well. Knowing this would eliminate the cover story, he was hiding his true intentions of being in America behind. He bargains with the syndicate man, Mr. Boosterbeg, for more time, then confesses to his need for chemicals for his boss, which Boosterbeg can arrange to acquire. After obtaining the supplies, Fred and Boosterbeg, for he must remain with the former, set off for England on the ship the Laurentia, not the boat that Fred originally planned to sail back on. The trip starts smoothly, and Fred gains respect for Boosterbag. However, one morning, Fred finds that Boosterbag can no longer move his legs. Fred tries to find help, but the hulls of the ship seem empty, except for a porter who appears to be unconscious. Fred is even more distressed to discover no one steering the ship, The crew, who should be doing so, also sprawled across the floor. He rings an alarm bell, which no one responds to. He reports to Boosterbeck that everyone on the ship seems to be dead. Fred carries Boosterbeck to the deck. He is able to start up the siren, hoping to garner either responses from the others on the ship or help from another vessel, and he also tours the rest of the ship looking for those who are merely injured, finding only corpses. They also set up flags to express to other ships they need help. When asked by Fred what he thinks occurred, Boosterbeg theorizes it might have to do with electricity and not plague, given the lack of marks on the bodies.
1: Yeah, something went wrong with the magic electrics.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the explanation for everything, is is electricity. Just sort of a vague (laughs) little explanation of like, ah, it's the the electricity.
1: It's kind of like radiation a bunch of decades later.
2: Yeah,
1: the magic radiation yeah. does all these weird things we we can't predict.
2: Pretty funny at yeah, this time and around this time they were using radium as like a yeah. multi cure for everything, much probably like the pill company that bought the sky advertisements mm-hmm. in the earlier part of the novel. As oh yeah, radium pills. I yeah, think right. Of that. You know, quack medicine was huge <laughs> at this time, yeah. and it's pretty funny that he does kind of lambast all the yeah. pill and soap companies. Yeah.
0: Eventually, another vessel comes to their aid. The sailors who board are incredulous at the state of affairs on the Laurentia as they find out that Fred and Boosterbeg are the only people alive on the ship. The captain boards and, after checking the boat over, accuses the two survivors of poisoning the rest of the crew. Fred is shocked by this, but Boosterbeg explains to him, once they're alone, that the captain made that up because it was an easier explanation that the other seamen could understand. When the ship reaches a port in Liverpool, the officials are as shocked by what's happened to the Laurentia as the sailors were, but are more surprised about the live passengers than the dead ones. They question Fred and Boosterbeg, the former of whom is offended by everyone wanting to know why he didn't die, and being disappointed that he had been asleep when his fellow passengers were dying. We learn at this point that what has happened to the Laurentia is not an isolated case, Throughout France and in some parts of Spain, there has been a series of train crashes where trains have stopped reacting to signals, leading to either collision with other trains or trains going off the rails. In each case, the passengers of trains that have ignored signals have all been found dead, even ones that have received no visible injuries. Beside train accidents, some people in France have merely dropped dead while walking. And England, still preparing for war against France, was not too sympathetic upon hearing this news, but then found that ships were coming into their harbors with the crew and passengers all dead. This added a good amount of significance to Fred's escape from the same fate. He and Boosterbeg are taken to London to be examined by a committee of doctors headed by a Dr. Brandwin. Fred is hesitant to be examined, not wanting anyone to see what wellingham has put around his neck, but eventually agrees. The ornament from wellingham is revealed to be a band of gold around Fred's neck. The doctors express interest and ask Fred how he got the necklace, but Fred refuses to answer until he is alone with Boosterbeg and Brandwin.
1: It's almost like Boosterbeg has to reassure him that it's okay to be wearing something around your neck.
0: Yeah.
1: Even if you're like... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, a normal man, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's really, it's really an odd thing that yeah. Adams put here. It's like they have this whole conversation about it, and Booster Bag actually says, "Oh, I've seen much queerer ornaments."
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah,
1: it's just kind of funny reading that in a modern context. It's okay, man. You can have this weird fetish around your neck. It's no problem. And he seems so <laughs> embarrassed by it. that that, that really cracked me up it was so such a strange addition you know it was almost like he was trying to say something with that but i don't really know it's like not really clear but it's almost like hey man, men can wear funky adornments like it's cool you know
0: yeah yeah like it's okay
1: yeah but another thing i wonder too is is it fixed on
0: it seems like it is i mean it's a pure band of metal around his his neck it seems like it's they don't seem to know how it was fastened on so i'm not sure if they know how to take it off yeah i mean
1: i thought to myself well surely they would have just taken it off but they're so nice to him as well like they're they don't intrude on his personal space or his body or whatever right and yet yeah if it was just around his neck on a a chain or something, they could just remove it very easily. Or he could remove it if he wanted to. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I wasn't quite sure if it was, it, it's almost like it was like branded onto him or something like that.
0: Yeah. When Fred is alone with Boosterbeg and Brandwin, he relates his background with Welligan, and once he does, Brandwin immediately points out that it was the necklace that saved him and Boosterbeg, since the necklace has a protective range around the area of the wearer. The three decide to head to Welligan for more information, going to his residence in Russell Square to find that he left there a month ago and that the machine is gone. They then attempt to locate Frisane and succeed in finding his rooms, but not the man himself, who had not been seen there in a few days. Meanwhile, more ships from England, as well as Holland, Belgium, Germany, Denmark, and Scandinavia, are discovered in the same condition as the Laurentia. Despite this troublesome state of affairs, England feels that it was at least safe for the time being from war with France. This feeling is cut short, however, with the discovery of a French warship found near Scotland. But this ship is then taken over by the British, as all of the French crew had suffered sudden death. The same happens to several ships in the British fleet while crossing the Strait of Dover. These incidents lead to the conclusion that the second meridian, a line to the east of England, is where many of the deaths occur. This theory is tested and proven to be correct. This meridian, a line of death, also split France in two, accounting for the train accidents and the people struck dead while walking. It also interferes completely with France's war plans, and so they raise an outcry over England, feeling it is the cause of this situation. England is also able to determine the second line of death to the west, at the 178th meridian. These lines divide the world into four sections. The first two are large, one consisting of most of Europe and Africa and almost the entirety of Asia, the other of all the Americas, and the next two are small, one made up of the British Isles, Spain, half of France and part of West Africa, another containing most of New Zealand and the remaining portion of Asia. With this information now discovered, a commission is formed to figure out how to handle and solve this situation. On this commission is the Minister of War, who relates to the rest of the members an encounter he had previously with Wellingham, who offers him the ability to make crossing any meridians of his choosing result in death to those who attempt to do so. He also says the price Wellingham had wanted in return for his service was 50,000 pounds worth of chemicals. The commission then also becomes interested in finding Wellingham, as well as in Fred's necklace, which they determined to be made of an unknown metal. Soon, Forrester and Centerpoint come forward with their statements, seeing them as relevant. They were able to do a post-mortem on one of the bodies the machine at Warpinger's Lane killed, and found only a striation of the nerve fibers to be any indication of what happened to them. The commission decides to send Fred to check the machine, believing his ornament will keep him from being affected by it. Forrester, along with Centerpoint and some police officers, leads Fred to the machine, and Fred walks past the corpses, proving that he is safe from its effects. He moves closer to the machine, examining it, and finds a globe in the center of the device. On the globe, he finds, are pointers touching at 2 degrees east and 18 degrees west. The group is then interrupted by Frazane, who appears in the doorway of the room. He leads Fred and the others to another room in the house, containing a wardrobe, in which is the murdered corpse of William. The police then take Frazane in for questioning. The
1: room should be getting pretty smelly about now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of dead people there. A lot of corpses.
1: (laughs) There's like a pile of dead people. (laughs) Yeah. That's not, not, not something that he comments on, but it's just something that I thought of. It's like, wow, all those corpses have been sitting there for a few days now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and the fact that it's like a, the only reason they were able to do the post-mortem on the other is because he had fallen backwards. Like the rest of the people had just kept dying because they kept getting through that like line of death. It is at the station that they learn Frizzain has lost the use of both arms while trying to examine the machine. The professor also tells the police that he had known of Welligam's move to Warpinger's Lane, but that he is not responsible for his death, and that the machine Welligam was working on at the time of his death was a different one for Zane had believed he was working on. He also admits a good amount of ignorance towards the device in the room, but that he believes it works by harnessing a force known as Panargon. If someone were to try to destroy the machine, it would release the panagon stored in the globe, resulting in the deaths of everyone in a 600-mile radius. The police then interview Dick and his gang, also now in custody, who admit to killing Welligam, but not before he had activated the device. While trying to figure out how to handle the machine, Fred suddenly receives a letter that Welligam had sent to him through the other ship he had originally planned to take back to England. In the letter are the instructions on how to control the machine, which was not, as Frisane thought, operating on Panargon. Fred uses these instructions to remove the death posed at the meridians, returning everything to normalcy. After this, however, England sends out a message to every nation to disband their armies or be cut off from the world with lines of death. Thus, England becomes the keeper of world law and order, and Fred is at the head of this effort as the main controller of the machine though three other men have been taught the secret and will be replaced once they die. Verzaine is under confinement and observation for the rest of his life as the only person with any potential to gain the secret. Many nations objected to having no other representatives helping keep the peace, but, and I quote, our rulers refused on the ground that they knew of no place where law and order were safer than under the Union Jack. And on that note, the story ends.
1: Yeah, so Fred's emperor of the world now.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Is this a happy ending or not? That's a pretty good advancement for Fred.
0: I felt quite a little d- this unnerved by that. Like, I guess they just, he has the power to do anything now.
1: Yeah. It reminded me of, like, some parody of something really nationalist, I guess. Like, it was, it was kind of, it didn't really seem mm-hmm. like... It was entirely a good thing, and, and like, there's so yeah. much satire in this book.
2: Yeah, I mean, it does seem pretty ridiculous that the entire <laughs> world would agree, of course the British are the best people to look out over well, the course yeah. of that's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I just feel like there's there's actually a lot of good social observation throughout this book, you know? I mean, starting with the beginning of almost, I don't know, like, it almost made me think of, like, Dickens or something. How Mm no this this guy's trying to make his way in the city and keeps falling afoul of scam artists.
2: Oh yeah, and the scam uh, artists are total Dickensian scammers too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And his attitude towards the police and how like changes depending on how well he's doing. Like when he's doing poorly, he's really afraid of them. But then like when things are good, he's Mm -hmm. like, Oh no, the police should protect me, right?
0: Yeah, I think it's funny, too, that at the very end, there's that, like, idea of, like, ah, yes, England is going to be the keeper of law and order. It's obvious. When we've seen throughout the entire book how incompetent the police have been.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And there's, like, criminals everywhere. So, I mean, they're obviously <laughs> not having any effect on crime, never mind, like, solving any cases at all. And I think the doctors that stumble upon the death machine are hesitant to go to the police because they specifically say that they're just a bunch of incompetent fools that'll make a bigger mess of the situation than it already is
1: yeah the doctor remembers his oath which is i thought kind of startling you know he just he thought well i swore to not like not talk about my patient's business and right to keep things confidential right mm-hmm. it's just surprising that somebody would think of that i guess
2: yeah the hippocratic oath
1: yeah, yeah not doing mm-hmm. harm but also not divulging things that might be harmful to, right. to them right so it's kind of a little bit of a shame because, again, I think you're right. Like, it, it does feel like he was sort of making it up as he went along. And he seemed quite, like, pretty sympathetic towards the tenement dwellers, even though they were burglars.
2: Yeah. Now, they were funny characters. Yeah. And I, I like their their addition, even though it did feel kind of random at the time. And it's like, wait, why are we shifting mm-hmm. perspective to these people again? But, you know, they were cool. <laughs> and I really like that tangent. Yeah.
1: And then but at the end, mm-hmm. like, they ended up having murdered William, right? And it was just kind of like... was a little bit... Almost disappointing. They're just meant to be like... Rough unsavory characters... After yeah. all. I guess. Yeah. It was kind of neat... The way he described... How... The guys in the community... Sort of saw it... As they, they thought this guy... Was a counterfeiter. Right? Yeah. Because of the machinery he had. But they thought... Oh he's being really sloppy about it. And yeah. he's like... He's gonna get like... Noticed. And the police are gonna... Shut him down. So why don't we like... Raid some of his stock... Before that yeah. happens. <laughs> right? Makes total sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Another neat bit of satire I noticed was how when they were looking to figure out the lines of demarcation of the weapon, and they used a, they used a bunch of animals to test it. Right, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. And they basically shoved a bunch of, what was it, a cat, two dogs, and a couple of ducks in a cage together. Yeah. <laughs> this This was like sort of what the commission decided was going to help them and they depersonalize it right because it's obviously pretty cruel what do they call it they called it the thanatomometer yeah right (laughs) it was like basically a canary (laughs) cage right it's like oh what's that there's some animals fighting oh don't worry it's just a thanatomometer yeah
2: yeah No, it does maintain a pretty clever and humorous tone throughout which i think is one reason I thought the ending was a little disappointing is it does cause kind of fizzle out and end with a deus ex machina. Yeah. I think one way this could have been a lot better is it having some ridiculous showdown between Frizzain and Wellingham. Right. Like uh, a sword fight we might see coming up in oh, a yeah. later story. I know. Story. A sword fight
1: would have been great. Or <laughs> yeah. like an electric and electric sword
2: fight. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah even better. <laughs>
0: Yes. I, I was really disappointed that Wellingham had died. I thought that maybe they would actually have like a, a showdown between him and Frisane.
2: Yeah, and like off screen too. Like you you just find him and dope oh, Wellingham's got a hole in his head.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought I too I also thought like Wellingham might have turned out to be insane. And it just seemed like he just sent off Fred, to do all this work, right? And then who knows what was happening. And then he moved He moved to this little flat. And then all this bad stuff started to happen. And I thought, kind of thought to myself, oh, like he's turned totally nuts, right? And and then it seems like it, even the guy who was running the commission, the war minister, was actually approached by him. And he said, oh, well, I can do this. I can like box in any country you want. And they kind of called him ridiculous. And it almost seemed like he had done this for revenge, Which is pretty shitty. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And it's just like I I almost thought, okay, Frisane's gonna turn out to be not that bad and William's gonna turn out to be the villain. Right? This is how I almost saw things going. And then when Frisane did finally show up, he didn't seem that evil or that like nefarious. Like, he just wanted to find out how the thing worked.
0: Yeah, I feel like Frisane is still pretty sympathetic. I mean, there's that part where the narrative does say, like, if he had just used his own brains, he would have been quite successful. Sort of, like, lamenting that he was trying to steal Welligum's ideas, but he was smart on his own. Yeah,
1: he wasn't very successful at synthesizing whatever it was that Welligum can come up with. But I just thought, like, in the end, he turned out... It seemed like he was more... I don't know like he seemed like maybe he, he, he was more sane than William was <laughs> and he talked to everybody and he was very rational about it and everything and like even when William and Fred had their meeting and they spent some time together and stuff there was a lot of ominous hints like there was a lot of mm. oh this guy like experiments on people and he has yeah. he's very cold and callous and he's kind of like yeah. his mind is off somewhere weird
0: yeah he jokes about it
1: yeah so I kind of thought, like, I don't know, it was weird that Adams just decided to kill him off. I don't know, mm-hmm. I mean, I I guess I enjoyed the journey, but yeah, like, the ending was a little bit... I don't want to say unsatisfying, because I kind of liked the very end. Like it, like, it had this, again, it had this sort of, hmm, is that really a good thing kind of <laughs> tone to it, you know? Yeah. Or it's like, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's really a desirable outcome for everybody, right? Like, it seems unfortunate (laughs) and it's couched in the form of something really positive like it's like yeah england is master of the world now and fred is emperor be happy
2: and everybody loves it
1: yeah (laughs) and nobody wants to remove his ornament (laughs) (laughs) everybody converts to electric christianity
2: yeah right (laughs) maybe yeah no overall i thought this was pretty good despite (laughs) the somewhat weak ending but this as otherwise totally unknown like on Goodreads I was the first person to rate this at all and I was kind of surprised because this wasn't bad at all and a lot of times with these like totally obscure works okay there's a reason there's nobody's read them in a hundred years it's because they're Mm -hmm. really dull and boring and I was kind of worried that that was going to be the case with this one but after I got through the first chapter I was really into it and it's one of those Mm -hmm. that really grab you from the beginning I think and are pretty entertaining throughout. But yeah, we've posted this on our blogspot, so it's easier to read in plain text form. There was a version on archive.org, which is a scan of the book, but the OCR was a little messy. But yeah, definitely check this one out on our blogspot, because I think it's worth reading.
1: We know that some of his other works were intended for uh, a younger audience, and he was an educator. Do we feel this book was intended for a younger audience?
2: I don't think it was. Just based on my guess on the format his children's books, like explicitly for children's books, were in. Most of them were short stories that were printed in a handful of boys' magazines, but the other two novels that I was able to find that he wrote under the Cooper's pseudonym, Hammond's Hard Lines and The Uncharted Island, are also both on archive.org, and they're much less in word count, like I think it's maybe like half of this the format of the pages is much larger and it clearly looks intended for like a child to read it whereas this looks like Mm. uh, I mean young adult wasn't really a thing in 1903 or 1902 or whenever this came out, but yeah, it, it looks like it was intended to be read for like a more mature audience than children.
1: I I wasn't so sure. I mean, I, I thought there were certain aspects of the writing style that, and I don't mean this as a, a denigration, I don't mean like it's as a negative thing. I just thought the way it was written did remind me of some modern children's books. Like it had this kind of, I guess it was the humor, it was this kind of the light tone to discuss kind of heavy subjects. A couple of times I was reminded of like Roald Dahl and, and like, you know, obviously he wrote stuff for older readers too. That's very definitely for older readers because some of it's a bit raunchy, but he's most known as a children's writer and his books for kids are, they're engaging in that way. Like they don't seem like they're talking down to the readers. They just seem like they're, they're written in a certain way that would appeal to a, a very young mind. And I, I kind of felt like that maybe this was the case with Fortune. Another thing I was reminded of, and I think I might have mentioned this to Gresham before, was the Series of Unfortunate events books by Lemony Snicket. (laughs) They're not written with a lighter vocabulary. They're not written with less dedication or sincerity. They just, they have something about them, something in the style, something in the way that they try to engage the readers with sort of interesting concepts that make me think that perhaps the intended audience might have been a little bit younger. But I'm just speculating, and again, it's hard to say, especially with a work that's over 100 years old. We've mentioned Algernon Blackwood on the podcast before, and one of my favorite things by him is actually this book from 1915 called The Extra Day. And I'm pretty sure that it's sort of targeted towards younger readers. The, the characters in the book, the main characters are three siblings that are all really young, but it's such an open-minded and such a like beautiful powerful book that while you're reading it that doesn't I don't get this feeling that I would get with some things or like some TV shows where it's like I'm not the intended audience I'm too old for this stuff like I don't get that feeling, right right but it's still something that I'm sort of conscious of that yes a child who read this could really have their mind opened or something like that right
2: yeah I don't know it's hard to say I mean this was the last work at least the last work I was able to find by him under the pseudonym he wrote after like at least 10 years of writing children's stuff. So that just could be the style that comes natural to him. Or it could be just a children's book published in a a longer form. The publisher on this one was Thomas Nelson and Sons. I don't know if they published children's literature primarily or both or they had certain imprints or or what the deal with them was. But yeah, I could see it going either way.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think that I can see what you mean about it sort of having this Not necessarily like the patronizing side of a children's book, but more maybe trying to be uh, mature still, but still trying to aim at children, just not talking down to them.
1: And I think that is the key to good children's literature, is not being patronizing, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, maybe it's not always the case, because I mean, I remember reading the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was eight and uh, and not finding it patronizing. But the other day I watched a YouTube video where somebody was talking about the book and the movie and the adaptation and what they changed and what they their ideas about how the, the two formats intertwined and what was changed. And he kind of does what we do and he starts by summarizing the book. And while I was listening to that, I kind of thought to myself, geez, that's a bit patronizing. right? Like that's... <laughs> <laughs> like C.S. Lewis, who's a renowned children's author, right? But I think the key to writing literature for children that is longstanding and that doesn't fade with time and which people still remember fondly and might want to read to their own children as they get older is that it's not patronizing and that it's, it treats them like people. The readers are people, not just because they're littler people doesn't mean they're lesser people, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was an interesting work for sure. I too was a little surprised that it wasn't more well known.
2: Yeah, the only reference online I could see to this in any kind of critical sense, aside from like bibliography listings or things like that, is a mention in the Future War entry on the Sci-Fi Encyclopedia website, which just has like a one or two sentence thing about how it has an unusually high body count for Future war novels. And that was really all I knew about this going into it. I just didn't want yeah. to really talk about it in any depth.
1: So it does sort of skirt around that. Like, that's another thing that kind of makes me think maybe, because yeah. like, the, the fact that so many people die is not really commented on, like, in terms of how ugly that is and how horrible it is.
0: Yeah. It's brushed over.
2: Yeah, it really is.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I loved the satire. And unlike with Dorking, I thought that the patriotism in this book was like. Faux patriotism, like it was not real, you yeah, know. It was so. just sort of making fun of it.
0: <laughs> I thought this was a pretty fun book. I, I like this was probably the one I had the most fun with reading. Yeah, with all of these that we we've read, even with the disappointing ending, I, I still thought the rest of it was quite a quick and nice read.
1: Yeah, definitely, I, I agree with that. It was a lot of fun. Right at the beginning, there's this funny thing too there's not there's not really a lot of discussion of technology or science in this book the kind of machine is sort of a magical thing right like there's a little bit of techno babble and it's not really very clear or well elucidated but i don't really think that he cared about that too much but right at the beginning uh, there was a funny thing that made me think because they were talking about well fred was in the city and he's looking at this He's passing by a newspaper office or something, and he's looking at this big billboard that displays the headlines and the news stories. And again, it's part of the satire, and it's this kind of funny comment on technology. I think, in that you know, obviously, the idea of television and and so on, and even radio, wasn't really on the, like wasn't really a thing yet. So you know, the idea that people could have news piped into their homes wasn't really a thing, right? But he had the news being displayed in front of the building. And he's like, yeah, that's really great, but people still have to, like, they have to all walk around and mill around there looking at it like it's technology without convenience, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of <laughs> funny, and that was, like, right at the beginning. And I thought, I, as soon as I read that, I'm like, oh, I'm in for some kind of fun ride here. Because just the way he's commenting on that is quite amusing.
2: Yeah, and there's lots of lines like that throughout the entire novel. And he does keep that tone throughout. Yeah.
0: There were a lot of points that actually made me kind of chuckle. Yeah. The one that I remember is when they first introduced Booster Bag and they say, like, he had the misfortune of being named that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, right. A lot of the characters do have these very silly Dickensian names as well. Yeah, that's quite Dickensish as well, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: Booster Bag. He seemed like a cool person. I kind of was sad that he just sort of completely faded from view once the commission was established and everything. You never heard from him again. (laughs) And he was a fun character. I liked, like, you know, at the beginning, Fred was was really upset that they were going to be sharing a cabin. And he was so, like, grumpy about it. And Booster Bag just sort of smoothed things out and made things okay. And he, like, reassured him about his ornament and everything. And, like, then the whole, I guess, the one sort of eerie part of the book when they wake up and everybody on the ship is dead and it's just the two of them. And Booster Bag can't move his legs. And he's trying to help fred who has no idea what to do with the ship or anything right and it's just that was a really good part that was like those two are going to be buddies now from now on right and i didn't really see more of booster bag after they got to england pretty much so yeah i was a little sad about that i liked him yeah and it was kind of like sort of undercutting to this like in the beginning it's like well, they passed a law in England saying they can't advertise in the sky. But in America, it'll be okay because everybody's into capitalism there and they all want to make money. So, of course, <laughs> they're going to have advertising in the sky, right? But then you meet Booster Bag.
0: Yeah. so like they don't really care about the safety.
1: Yeah. and then But then you meet Booster Bag and he turns out to be really cool. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, it's not so bad then, right? If it's going to be in the hands of people like that, maybe we're okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah
0: yeah it was a fun read and i i enjoyed this one
1: yeah me too i'm it was it was surprising in certain ways i thought and it even though it sort of scooted around certain things and didn't really go where i i kind of my excitement necessarily wanted it to go in a way i was oddly touched by it so and the ending does have this weird kind of not entirely positive connotation to it you know it's like i don't know if I don't know if that's great. (laughs) And uh, and it kind of left a lasting impression.
2: You could certainly do a lot worse than this one.
1: Yeah. And we have, and we will. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
2: But I think with that, we're going to take a quick break and shift gears a little bit and return to an author we've covered previously.